Well, as we come to session 10 in Cultivating Love, we are in that third column, what some have called the social virtues of brotherly kindness and love. And while a rudimentary possession of this love is common to all believers, for Paul says that we are rooted and grounded in love, it cannot exist in its mature 1 Corinthians 13 form without the supporting virtues in Peter's list. For example, we've said this before in earlier sessions, you cannot have a mature love that endureth all things without endurance. And you cannot have a love that hopeth all things and believeth all things without knowledge. You can't have a love that is kind and suffereth long without self-control. In the same way that a, a sonnet cannot be penned by somebody who doesn't have a command of grammar and diction and some poetic devices, love can't perform without its supporting cast as well. And I, I, don't, I hardly need to mention, I'm sure, that the agape love that Paul is talking about here is not the Hollywood turbocharged eroticism of our culture today. And neither is it merely affection or some kind of romantic attachment. Let's look at the definition of love, the definition of agape. And I want to note right at the beginning here that there has been much distinction made through the years uh, about the differences between the various Greek words for love. Agape and uh, philia, friendship, eros, sexual love, and storge, family love. But we probably can't cut these distinctions as finely as we would like to suppose. Each word does indeed have its own little flavor, but to make agape refer exclusively to a self-sacrificing willed benevolence to meet the needs of others doesn't always fit the biblical context. For example, Demas hath forsaken me having loved this present world, and he uses the word agape. Now, obviously, Demas is not having a self-sacrificing desire to meet the needs of the world. So agape doesn't always mean the full impact of that every time it's used. In 1 John 2, the Apostle John, in verse 15, commands us to love not the world. And he uses the word agape. So it can't always mean a self-sacrificing desire to meet the, the needs of this person. Rather, in these cases like this, agape speaks of the wholeheartedness and the deliberateness of that person's energy. And when it's used in these ways, it, um, it, it's, it's talking about the wholeheartedness of it. The same way we might say of somebody, boy, he really loves that car. And now what we're talking about is his wholehearted devotion to that thing. We're not talking about some sacrifice for the needs of this car. Well, maybe his car has needs. I don't know. But, um, and I guess that illustration breaks down. But the point is, it, it's, we, there is considerable overlap in these various words for love in the Greek, just as there is uh, in our overlap in those use of those words today. And it points out a good reminder for us in doing Bible study about the use of New Testament words, that it is the context, not just the etymology, that determines what a word means. We have to see how that word is being used in its context and not just say, well, back in the back of Strong's, it says that word means this. Well, it may not mean that in this context 
at all. It may mean some other flavor of that word. Having said all of that, uh, most commentators and Bible teachers agree that generally agape is distinguished from most of the other words by love, uh, the words for love, by its deliberateness and focus. One commentator put it this way, agape has to do with the mind. It is not simply an emotion which rises unbidden in our hearts, not like falling in love. It is a principle by which we deliberately live. Agape has supremely to do with the will. It is a conquest, a victory, and achievement. No one ever naturally loved his enemies. To love one's enemies is a conquest of all our natural inclinations and emotions. There's a deliberateness about it. This agape, this Christian love, is not merely an emotional experience which comes to us unbidden and unsought. It is, in fact, the power to love the unlovable, to love people whom we do not like. It demands that we have at all times a certain attitude of the mind and a certain direction of the will towards all men as they are. And again, most Bible teachers and commentators would agree that we're to have a comprehensive attitude of mind toward all men that is willing to act on the behalf of their best interests, even at personal sacrifice. But I want to show you something else here, that according to the biblical teaching, these, the, those best interests are directed primarily at spiritual needs, though it does not exclude meeting material, social, and physical needs. It is for that reason that the definition I propose on the chart reads this way. It is cultivating a God-imitating mindset that scripturally and sacrificially advances the spiritual welfare of others. And I want to show you why I think it is that way. I think to see this issue clearly, we have to look at the sweep of redemptive history where God unfolds what love is like in himself. For example, ask yourself, what is going on here? When in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve defy the Lord's instructions, and they choose to eat of that fruit. And God calls them out of hiding. And he slays an animal and gives them the skins of that animal to wear and promises to Eve that her seed would crush the seed of the serpent, or would crush the head of the serpent. What is she saying? What is going on here? What is going on when God commanded daily animal sacrifices be brought to the tabernacle and then to the temple and given on behalf of the people. What is going on when a baby boy is born of a virgin in Bethlehem? What is going on when a young Jewish teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, walks on water, heals lepers, raises dead people, feeds crowds with a little boy's lunch. What really is going on? What is going on when that same rabbi assembles 12 disciples to follow him and learn his ways and be like him? And what is going on when Jesus is accosted by Roman officials and accused of blasphemy by the Jewish leaders and executed by crucifixion? What is going on? 
The answer is we are seeing the love of God on a mission to redeem and restore fallen man. That's what the love of God is all about. His plan is to redeem fallen men by atoning for their sin, calling them to repentance and once restored to fellowship with Him, transforming them by His Spirit through His words into the God-satisfying, God-worshipping, God-imitating creatures they were designed to be from the beginning. That's what's going on here. That is the love of God at work. That is His mission. Look at that last statement again and let's put our own names in it as we read it. What is going on here? What is God's mission? God's plan is to redeem fallen Jim Berg and put in your own name by atoning for Jim's sin. Calling him to repentance and once restored to fellowship with him, transforming Jim by his spirit through his words into the God-satisfying, God-worshipping, God-imitating creature Jim was designed to be from the beginning. Folks, that's what's going on. That's the love of God on a mission. And you and I are called to imitate that love. Let's say that you are one of the adult sponsors who was asked by your Christian school where your children attend to be um, one of the chaperones at a junior-senior banquet at a local hotel in a nice assembly room there. And you walk into that, that room, that conference room, and see that there's a stage set up on, in, in the front. And on a screen, projected on a screen behind that, uh, on, at the back of that stage, is a silhouette of the Eiffel Tower. And you look at the menu and the program sitting on the table in front of you, and you see that it's printed in French with some English subtitles so you could read it. And in the table, centerpiece decoration is a little replica of the Eiffel Tower. What would you assume is going on here? What, what, what are they trying to get you to think is involved here? They're trying to get you to think that the context of everything that's going on is Paris. If you came in and on that screen there was a riverboat, you might think, well, this is gonna, everything here is gonna be taking place as if we were on, uh, on the Mississippi River. Or if it was a Golden Gate Bridge, you would think maybe this is taking place in San Francisco. And that little icon would tell you the context of everything that is going to be going on that evening. And when we study God, folks, from Genesis to Revelation, it is all about the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for the redemption and the restoration of fallen man to the likeness of His Son, to the praise of God. And the silhouette cast on the background for the drama of the world is a cross. That's what's going on. From the fall of man, and really even before that, to the redemption of all things and the restoration of all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the love of God is on a mission to redeem and restore fallen man to the likeness of Jesus Christ, to the praise of the Father. That's what's going on. God's mission of love is about salvation, sanctification, and eventual glorification. 
And folks, think about this. This is the purpose that we embrace when we cultivate arete. What did we say that was about? That was about recognizing that we are here for one purpose. To display by our lives the excellency of Jesus Christ. The character of Jesus Christ. You know what we're saying when we cultivate arete? I joined this mission. And I ask Him to do it in me. I want Him to redeem and to restore me to the likeness of His Son. To the praise of His glory. That's what we're saying when we add to our faith virtue. That this is my purpose. This is what I live for. For Christ to be formed in me. And that is why we add knowledge. And that is why we add self-control. And that is why we add endurance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love so that we can be a part of that mission in representing Him well and be a part of that mission in being used of Him to advance that mission in the lives of other people. Now, the neat thing about this, when God calls us to love, now remember we talked about this, that you can't, you, you, we, we don't just look at this list and say, well, you know, I don't have to develop love until I'm retired because that's the last in the list. No, we're commanded to develop these all along. But we have understood that you can't have the full mature love unless you have the supporting cast of it. But here's the beauty of what God does when He calls you and me to love. He forces us, if we're going to love, to develop all of the other qualities. When I came as a student in 1970, back then, every student had to take four semesters of physical education. That was not my forte. I had played a little tennis in high school and uh, that was more... The friends who played with me called it chase the ball with Bergie. So you can tell how skilled I was at tennis. There was a very high chain-link fence around the courts. And my friends spent a lot of time in the parking lot looking for the balls that I had lobbed over the side. Sports was not my forte. I, I did need to be better at my uh, physical um, um, fitness. And what part of your grade was determined by how well you did in running two miles. And the goal was that if you were, if you ran two miles in 12 minutes, you got an A for that part of your grade. Well, I wanted to do that. So the first time I go out in the track, now that's eight times around that quarter mile track. First time, you know, I'm huffing and puffing going around there. And my goal is eventually, Two miles in 12 minutes. But it didn't happen that way at first. But, keep it, but forcing myself to stay at the goal developed everything I needed to develop to get to that point. And doing that over the course of the semester got my legs in shape and my lungs in shape and my heart in shape so that every one of those four semesters I was able to run two miles in 12 minutes. Now, what I want to illustrate here is that in, in pushing for that goal, it forced the development of all the things I needed to reach that goal. That's the way it is with love. 
God starts out by saying, it's all in this, folks. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you will pursue that with all of your heart, you won't be very good at it at first. But in pursuing that, you will develop all of the virtues you need to be able to do that. It's a beauty of God's plan here. I want us to understand that we have two responsibilities. We have a responsibility to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and that is to let Him and cooperate with Him and cultivate along with Him these essential virtues in our own souls. That's being a disciple. And then He has called us to be a disciple maker, to work with other people in helping them cultivate these things in their souls. And if we don't keep in mind this mission of what God is doing, we will cast the concept of love in terms of merely doing good deeds. Now, we will do good deeds. But we will do them as, as Jesus taught in Matthew 5. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, your good deeds, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. There is a spiritual reason why you do those good deeds. This isn't just good deeds for doing good deeds. This is doing good deeds so that your Father will be honored in some way. And I would suggest that love is not full-bodied, God-imitating love unless it sacrifices for the advancement of what God is doing in the other person's life. In fact, this is the whole thrust of the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always in this mission, even to the end of the earth. Here's what he's saying. God is saying, I am on a mission. It is a mission of love. And it is a mission to redeem and restore fallen men to the likeness of Jesus Christ, to the praise of the glory of the Father. And he's turned to every one of you and me and said, I want you to embrace that mission and help me get that done in the lives of other people. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, that passage about love, that removed from this mission-mindedness of Calvary love, deeds of sacrifice and benevolence become useless for the kingdom of God. He says, though you speak with the, the, the tongues of men and of angels, though you have eloquence and accuracy in what you say, without mission-minded Calvary love involved in all of this, you're like a noisy gong. And he said, you can have the gift of prophecy and you can understand all mysteries. And you can have faith that removes mountains, but without mission-minded Calvary love, it's nothing in the kingdom of God. Let's think about it this way. Why does this agape love, this mission-minded Calvary love, suffer long? And why is it kind? Why does this mission-minded Calvary love, why is it neither jealous nor proud? 
Why is this 1 Corinthians 13 agape mission-minded Calvary love? Why does it never behave inappropriately? Never behave inappropriately. Why is it neither self-seeking nor touchy? Why does it not keep accounts of wrong done to it? Why does this mission-minded Calvary love in 1 Corinthians 13 rejoice in the truth and never in evil? Why does it bear all things? Why does it believe the best about all things? Why does it endure all things? Because, folks, to act to the contrary is to betray and hinder the mission of God. To redeem and restore fallen men to the likeness of Jesus Christ for the praise of the Father's glory. Anytime you and I do not act in this 1 Corinthians 13 way, we hinder the mission. And God is on a mission. And by the way, that is why Paul is concerned about all of the problems in the church of Corinth. All of the infighting and the immorality and taking one another to court before unbelievers and the misuse of their Christian liberty and of their refusal and of their, their hindrance to stay um, up with their giving that they had promised. Why is he concerned about those? Because every one of those things hinder the mission of God. Why does Peter, in this passage we've been looking at, why is he concerned about the encroaching moral corruption outside the world that is beginning to infect the church because the Christian libertine uh, teaching is promoting licentiousness in the church? Why is Peter concerned? Because it hinders the mission of God in the earth. And he's on a mission of love to redeem and restore fallen men to the likeness of Jesus Christ to the praise of his glory. That's why we must not be worldly. It hinders the mission of God. That's why we must be fully engaged in this mission and cultivating these characteristics in our life so we do not hinder the mission of God. And mom and dad, if you are not seriously cultivating these things in your life, you are hindering the mission of God in your own children. And young people, that is no excuse because you have a Bible too and you can, you can develop these and cultivate these in your own life so that you don't hinder the mission of God in your children and in your friends. It is this intentionality that allows mature love to continue even when it is not recognized or even appreciated. Many years ago, when I became very, very discouraged one time in ministry and just thought, what is the use? God directed me to 2 Corinthians, Paul's autobiography of ministry, where Paul, I read over and over and I memorized lengthy passages of 2 Corinthians where Paul is talking about how he gave himself for others to advance this mission. Here are some of those passages. 2 Corinthians 4.15 Paul says, For all things are for your sakes. Do you see the deliberateness and the wholeheartedness of that? All things that we do are for your sakes. That the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 6.11 We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. 
2 Corinthians 7.3 I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. This is all for your sakes, everything we do. 2 Corinthians 7.12 Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. We care about you. And he said, I want you to see it. How was he manifesting that care? By reproving them for tolerating immorality in their church. 2 Corinthians eleven nine, And when I was present with you and wanted, in other words, I had needs, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so I will keep myself. I don't want to be a burden to you. I'm here to be a help to you. 2 Corinthians 12, Behold, the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. For I seek not yours, not the things that you have, not your money, but I seek you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. So you don't have to be appreciated to keep up your love because you've embraced the mission of God which is to be involved in redeeming and restoring fallen men to the likeness of Jesus Christ for the praise of his glory. In 2 Corinthians 12, 19, it says again, Think ye that we excuse ourselves unto you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. Folks, this is godliness on a mission. This is agape love. I'd like us to think of it this way. Notice this dynamic of love. This is what happens when a godly man intersects another person. What happens? It's like that godliness hitting a prism. And that white light of godliness is broken up into all of those individual characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians 13. If you're interacting with a godly person, you're seeing some patience. And you're going to see some kindness. And you're going to see that he's not jealous. And he's not proud. And he's not ill-behaved. And he's not selfish. And he's not easily provoked. And he's forgiving. And he takes God's side. And he bears and endures and hopes all things. That's godliness. That's godliness on a mission of love. Folks, imagine how our local churches we would be transformed by mutual edification if every time we came into contact with one another, those that spectrum of 1 Corinthians 13 was coming out of all of us. Imagine what it would be like. It would be very much like what heaven is going to be. And you understand again why the, the supporting cast of virtues has to be in place for that to happen? Love is about being disciples, allowing God's mission to transform you and about making disciples. Being disciples is what's tied up in the first two columns. Loving God with all of your heart. Being a disciple maker is what's tied up in the third column. Loving your neighbor as yourself to be participating in God's mission 
well, how do we cultivate this love? This love is not our natural tendency. It's certainly not mine. And I'm quite sure that it's not yours because we're made out of the same stuff. But this is not, this is not a Hollywood love where you just fall in love with people. It's not what this is. And by the way, God didn't just fall in love with us, looking over the battlements of heaven at all of these mutinous creatures down here and just can't help himself because of all these wonderful people. That is not what happened. There was deliberate focus in this love. There was a mission he was on, and it was to redeem and restore fallen men to the likeness of his Son, to the praise of his glory. That's love. We don't instinctively live for others, nor do we instinctively do goods out of concern for their spiritual needs. Our love must be deliberately cultivated and deliberately expressed. How then do we cultivate it? Well, agape love, as we've seen in passing, is created in us at salvation. It's, of course, immature and undeveloped, But since it is a fruit of the Spirit, it is present to some degree in every believer because the Spirit is present there. Here's how the apostles put it, Romans 5. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. All of us, it's salvation. It's like God laid down a carpet of love on our souls. Now, it may have become very stained, And we may have covered it over with our own area rugs of one kind or another. But God did put some love there when he bought us. 1 Thessalonians 4.9 says, But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. God will teach his children to love if they listen. 1 John 4, 7 to 8, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Well, at salvation, God has put the beginnings of that love, very immature, but he's put that in our souls. But we've got to cultivate it. It matures as we are motivated to love by beholding the love of God at Calvary. Passage that God really drilled home to me while I was in college is 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. I meditated much on this passage. I wanted to soak every bit of truth out of it and I've still got a ways to go. But here's what he said. For the love of Christ constraineth us. It motivates us. It drives us. For we thus judge, or we've made this judgment, or come to this conclusion, that if one died for all, it's because all were dead. But he died for all, that they who now live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died and rose again. He didn't die for us so we could just go on in our self-centered ways. He died for us so that we would live for him. If you want to get a pan hot with some hamburgers or something else in it, all you have to do is get it close 
to that gas fire on your stove or electric fire, whichever one you're using. And just the proximity to the stove will heat up the pan. That's exactly what happens here. You spend a lot of time by that cross, understanding that love. And folks, you will grow in love. I often tell students who are, that I'm counseling who are very self-centered. And they're giving into temptations right and left and they can't seem to get any victory. And I tell them, I want you to understand the love of God for you. I want you to spend the next week reading and rereading every day the last several chapters of every gospel. I want you to see that crucifixion over and over and over again. And along with that, I want you to read Isaiah 53 over and over and over and over again. I took one whole Saturday and just spent it with Isaiah 53. And I ask God to burn that into my soul. And all you have to do is get close to that love of Isaiah 53 and you will see he was wounded. I saw he was wounded for my transgressions. And he was bruised for my iniquities. And the chastisement of my peace was upon him. And with his stripes I was healed. I saw his love. And folks, you've got to go back to that cross over and over and over again if you want Calvary love. You don't spend any time at the cross. You will not love well. Barclay comments on this change within a man who has been conquered by gazing at Calvary. And he says this. Christianity does not think of a man finally submitting to the power of God. We don't just submit because he's great and we're small and we cower and if we don't move, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna squish us. He's saying Christianity does not think of a man finally submitting to the power of God. It thinks of him as finally surrendering to the love of God. It is not that the man's will is crushed, but his heart is broken. Is it any wonder then that Paul says this? Truly, the greatest of these virtues is what? It's love. Folks, may we make it our lifelong pursuit to join God in a mission of love. And that means you and I will be about the business of redeeming and restoring fallen men to the likeness of Christ, to the praise of the Father. That's agape love.